0: This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 27. We've reached the crucifixion of Jesus. This bloody and horrific scene is the center point of history. It's where redemption occurred and humanity, cursed by sin, found hope in God's Son. In this third and final message on this event, we witness the last moments before Christ's death. We are amazed that Jesus can still speak. We hear the reaction of doubters nearby, and then we see what appears to be the end of Jesus. But God the Father makes it clear that this is not the end. There will be more to come, for sure, but for now. Let's conclude this part of the redemption story as we listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Find your
1: places in Matthew 27, verses 45 through 56. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the, the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So far, we've identified six features of the crucifixion scene, the conscription, the cruelty, the custom, the conviction, the contempt, and the contrast. Today, let's identify five more. And I want to start with the cynicism, verses 45 through 49, the cynicism. Now Matthew describes the last moments of Christ on the cross, and he mentions a three-hour blackout. Matthew says it covered the entire land. This could have been the entire earth, or this could have been the land of Israel. We don't know for sure. But what we know for sure, this was not a natural phenomenon for many reasons. For the sake of time, I'll just give you two. Number one, a solar eclipse wouldn't last that long. A solar eclipse wouldn't last three hours. Second, we know that if a celestial body larger than the moon blocked sunlight while flying between the sun and the earth, the gravitational pull would have severely disrupted the orbits of the inner planets of the solar system, causing catastrophic results here on earth. So we know that that's not what happened. It's not some large body that flew by and took three hours to cover the light from the sun. Now, what could have happened here is that God could have reversed or fast-forwarded the rotation of the earth temporarily. We know that this could have been the case because he did something similar. The days of Joshua, for example, Joshua 10, verse 13, to allow Israel to win a battle. Well, in that case, God paused the rotation of the earth temporarily so that the sons of Israel could win the battle. The question is, how could that have happened without catastrophic disasters? Very simple. The one who created the universe and holds all things by the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1, verse 3, can replace natural laws that he created with other laws unknown to humans, anytime he wants. And furthermore, think about this. The God who created light, in order light to exist, according to Genesis 1, verse 3, could have demanded, let there be no light, temporarily. We don't know exactly what God used, what mechanisms God used, or what phenomena that he recruited to use to create that darkness, but we know the reason. And here it is. In the Bible, we know that darkness symbolizes sin. Now, we also know that physical darkness also communicates divine judgment. Ancient Egypt gives us that example. So, therefore... This three-hour blackout paints a very clear picture of the Son of God receiving the full measure of abandonment from the Father as a substitute for sinners. Is that clear? So when we read about darkness upon the land for three hours during the crucifixion of Jesus, we know that Jesus is receiving punishment for sins and that he is receiving divine judgment. And in that case, in the form of abandonment, because he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? Now, literally what's happening here is what Paul describes, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. And Jesus confirms this very fact with his shout from the cross when he's agonizing over temporary separation from the Father in verse 46. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Well, we know that this event fulfills Psalm 22 verse 1. And the point here is that this momentary alienation from the Father was Christ's most painful moment in the crucifixion. We know that the physical pain was terrible, but this was the most agonizing moment of Christ on the cross because he knows what's happening here. There is darkness upon the land. He is receiving the full cup of God's wrath. And to his agony, he is crying out, Why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer to that. So this is not a real question. This is a rhetorical question that he came here for that moment. He came to experience that alienation from the father temporarily. Now, some of the people watching him responded to that. They thought that Jesus was summoning Elijah, but others were being obviously cynical because of the accusation that was against Jesus. The accusation was true that he was the Son of God, he was the Messiah. So the Jews around who heard the loud cry from Jesus were saying, well, let's see if he's really the Messiah, then the forerunner will come at any moment now. Elijah will come at any moment. Let's see. That is arrogance, pride, a cynicism here, because they knew, according to Malachi 4, verse 5, that Elijah will come and prepare the way for the Lord. They completely misunderstood the role of John the Baptist as a forerunner, as an Elijah-like prophet. And they were saying, well, let's see. If this man is the Messiah, then Elijah will come in any moment. The tragic part of this scene is that every person who rejects Christ will one day cry out to God from hell. Oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? And tragically, they will know the answer because the people who reject Christ and will therefore spend eternity in hell will learn truth too late. And they will have to cry out, not temporarily, but eternally. They're going to agonize over their separation from God because they declined to come to faith in Christ. They rejected Christ, not because of a lack of information, but because of a lack of willingness the rebellion of their hearts, and therefore the tragic scene for them. The sad situation of people who are outside of Christ now is that if they continue in their rebellion, they will go to hell and they will experience fully separation from God the Father because they rejected Christ. But look at verse 48 here. There's this mention of the sour wine here. Don't get confused with the one that we read earlier. It produces the very opposite effect. Remember, when Jesus was being crucified, somebody offered him... A, a drink that would numb his muscles and make the job of the executioners easier. That is not the case. Now, this is a different type of drink here. This would have the opposite effect of the wine mixed with gall here. This drink here would keep Jesus awake because this is the energetic of the ancient times. Think about a first century Red Bull, the energy drink for the Roman army. So, The purpose of this, remember, the the Romans were not compassionate people, the Roman soldiers. Their purpose was to prolong suffering as long as possible. And by offering this energy drink to Jesus, then they know, oh, he's going to be awake for a little longer so that we can torture him a little more. We can taunt him a little more. So that's the point. Now let's look at the next feature of the crucifixion according to Matthew here. We looked at the cynicism here, but the next part is the confirmation. Verses 50 to 51 and Matthew clarifies that Jesus let out another shout. See, there's something unusual about this crucifixion already. I mean, if if the darkness didn't convince anybody that this is some, okay, this is serious. This is not usual. The land, this land, doesn't experience this type of darkness during the Passover feast. And this crucified victim here is shouting from the cross. I mean, most people don't have their voices anymore. But in John 19 verse 30, we're told that after drinking the sour wine. He said, it is finished. In other words, Jesus finished the work of redemption, and he says, Father, I'm giving you my life as an offering to you. And with this, Christ proclaimed that redemption has been paid in full. The debt has been satisfied. He willingly laid down his life for his sheep. He paid the penalty that you and I should have paid God, but would never been able to pay. So Jesus offers up his life as a sacrifice to the Father on behalf of you and me. And that sacrifice ascended to heaven as a sweet aroma to the Father. The Father received that sacrifice. Our beautiful Savior breathed his last. When he did this, he settled our unpayable debt to God. And when you appropriate the work that Jesus did on the cross on your behalf... The Father credits your overdrawn account with the righteousness of Christ and treats you as if you had never sinned because He treated His Son as if He had committed every one of your sins, past, present, and future. That is the transaction we're looking at here. That is what's going on in those last three hours on the cross. But look at verse 51. Christ's death on the cross triggered another supernatural event here, A curtain in the Jerusalem temple separated the inner chamber, which represented God's dwelling place. That was the veil that was torn. It's a piece of cloth, a very thick piece of cloth, by the way, four inches thick. And that veil was a representation of the relationship that we have with God. Namely, that there is a restriction. Not everyone could just simply walk into the presence of God. Remember, the Holy of Holies represented the presence of God. It doesn't mean that God confined himself in that place because we know that God is omnipresent. So that place represented the presence of God. And that veil was a visual aid for everybody to understand. There is a restriction here. We can't go into the presence of God because of sin. Because if I'm a person that is unholy, go into the presence of God that is holy, I will fall dead. Only the high priest was allowed to pass through the veil to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. To make sacrifices on behalf of the people. That is in the book of Exodus chapter 30, verse 10, and also the author of Hebrews clarifies that in chapter 9, verse 7. And he had to make sure that he had made all the purifications for himself because if he had any sin there, he would fall dead and people would have to rescue him by pulling a little robe. What we have here and then with this miracle of the veil being torn from top to bottom is that God approved Christ's satisfactory payment for sin. That is God's answer to the sacrifice. You see, There's an interaction going on here. Jesus says to the Father, Into your hands I commend my spirit. And the Father responds by tearing the veil from top to bottom. And as he does this, he clarifies that this is a transaction made in heaven. Now, the tearing of the veil also made the Old Testament Levitical priesthood obsolete and inaugurated a new and living way by which everyone can have access to the Father. Now, again, the old covenant was discontinued at that point, and the new has been established. Now, Jesus already hinted that when in the upper room he instituted the Lord's Supper. He talked about the new covenant, and now it became even more clear to everybody that the old covenant had been discontinued, and now there's the new. The author of the book of Hebrews helps us understand this when he says, when he writes... Chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So we understand what's going on here. By removing that veil, what God is communicating is anyone has access to me through the Son. Something that Jesus had already said in John 14 when he says, I am the way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And now he is making that obvious. By during the crucifixion, he gave his life to the Father. The Father responds by ripping the veil from top to bottom, opening the door for anyone who would come. By grace through faith in Christ. His death is sufficient, is the lesson here, to atone for sins. And Matthew wants us, his readers, to see that the tearing of the veil confirms everything that Jesus Christ said about himself. He is a supreme high priest. Now, the next event here that the writer describes is an earthquake. Now, there's nothing supernatural about an earthquake. We know that because earthquakes are common. Um, the timing of this one here indicates that this is an act of God. But if they didn't realize that this was God the Father responding to God the Son when God the Son said, into your hands I commit my spirit, they would not miss the next one, the next supernatural event here. Because that earthquake produced a few things, and one of those things was to open tombs, which leads us to the next feature of the uh, crucifixion scene, according to Matthew here. So after the cynicism and the confirmation, we have the call. So God responds to Christ's sacrifice, God the Father, by calling people from the grave, indicating to us, to you and me, that bodily resurrection is a part of the redemption package. We will be resurrected to eternal life, those of us who are redeemed. And that is what is being taught and communicated here. But notice that these people didn't leave their tombs. They were raised from the dead, but they weren't seen by people until after Jesus rose from the dead. And we know the reason for that. The reason is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, where Paul says that Christ is the first fruit of those who are asleep. And their ministry was to be seen as a witness of Jesus. They would have been seen, and they would have served as a witness of Jesus Christ. Now, the question for us is this, church. Who else has a unique ministry from God, and that ministry is of being seen so that others can glorify him? Who else had that ministry? You are correct. You have a unique ministry of being seen so that people can glorify God who is in heaven. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Your life is to be on display so that people can see what Christ's likeness is all about. And therefore, when they look at your life, the way you talk, the way you relate to one another, the way you live your life, the way you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that is to be a testimony to them and say, wait a minute, I want that for me. I want that peace that surpasses all understanding. I want that joy. His world is fallen apart and this guy is praising God. And I'm here having to, to take pills in order to go to sleep because I'm, I'm battling anxiety or whatever. Your life is to serve as a witness to others. In my life the same. So we share that same ministry with those people. And by the way, we are dead people walking, are we not? That is because of sin, but the good news is that we will raise up like these people. In fact, they are a preview of what's going to happen to us. One day, our bodies are going to come out of those graves. And we're told that in First Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17, "...for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel went the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. So that is a preview. This scene here is a preview of the day of the rapture. So that's the call. According to Matthew, after the cynicism and the confirmation and the call, the next feature of the crucifixion scene here is the confession, verse 54. We see somebody confessing Christ. And by the way, the word confess means to say the same thing. So he is confessing what Jesus said about himself. Now, the three hour blackout, the earthquake and the shout from Jesus convinced the Roman guards that the crucified man in the middle was the son of God. So that Roman guard, at least those guys, at least recognized the identity of Christ after everything that happened in those three hours. And what that tells us, church, is that the Father answered the prayer of the Son immediately. Because remember, not too long before that, Jesus prayed, Lord, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's in Luke 23, verse 34. He is praying for the forgiveness of his own executioners. And what happens? The Father responds to that prayer. And at least those guys who were overseeing the crucifixion there, keeping guard over Jesus, recognized that this is the Son of God, and therefore they became believers. In fact, Luke writes that one of them praised God. They were frightened. Of course, we would be too, but that fright led to them praising God which is a pretty good indication that they became believers. And by the way, they were the first Gentiles to metaphorically pass through that veil that was torn. Again, communicating to us that this is not a deal for the Jews only, but to everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. And we have here proof that Roman soldiers, Gentile people, believed in Jesus. And the lesson is clear. If God forgives even the people who are mocking Christ and abusing him verbally, physically, emotionally, he can also forgive modern-day enemies of the gospel. No one is outside of the grace of God. And we need to understand that. No one is outside the reach of divine grace. Anyone who desires to be saved will be saved. But we know that not everybody is going to want to be saved. They're going to rebel, and they're going to end up in the lake of fire, tragically. So anyone who desires salvation will be saved as long as that happens before the day they die. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers can all be forgiven and restored. And we know that because Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, such were some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. First Corinthians 9, verse 11. And because Scripture has already convinced you that Jesus is who he claimed to be and therefore is able to save your soul, you should follow the example of that Roman Soldier, or those Roman soldiers, at least four of them, we should all follow their examples and glorify God and worship him. Now, we saw the cynicism, the confirmation, the call, the confession. Now, I want to conclude this whole thing by showing you the community. Verses 55 through 56, the community here. Now, those two verses, 55 through 56, seems to be out of place here. He's describing the crucifixion, and now he mentions a couple of women, or three women, at least, by identification here. Why is he doing that? Nothing in Scripture is there by mistake. This is not an oversight by Matthew. There's a purpose for that. It should catch our attention here. The author later also points out that at least two of them were the first ones to see the risen Lord. That is significant. That is something we'll talk about when we get to the scene of the resurrection there. But what does that mean, church? What do you think this means that Matthew is including women here, the scene of the crucifixion here? This is what it means. Whoever told you. That Christianity oppresses women is lying to you. Whoever told you that Christianity is an oppressive religion to women hasn't read this portion of scripture. Or, and many others that highlight the Christ likeness of women in ministry. Have you heard of Phoebe? Have you heard of Lois and Eunice and Priscilla? Just to name a few in the New Testament? Scripture obviously doesn't permit women to be elders. We know that that's clear. Or it doesn't permit women to exercise pastoral and teaching authority over men in the church. But it doesn't mean that they are not equally valuable in the community of the redeemed. Church, men and women have distinct roles. I know this is hard for our secular culture to understand now. But men and women have distinct roles. But they share the same essence. My wife and I share the same essence of people. We're both image bearers. We're equally bear the image of God. We're equally redeemed, but we do not have the same role in the family. Is that clear? It's the same thing here. Matthew is showing how much women are part of the family, because these women will have very important roles also in the early church. They already had important roles in the ministry of Jesus here, providing for his needs, and now they are experiencing the sorrow of seeing their 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 Savior crucified, but they're there looking on. Now, there's no other disciple there other than John. Where are these guys? We don't know. But the women are there. They are experiencing a very tragic moment, but they have their eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. To quote from Hebrews 12, verse 2, and they exercise the ministry of tenderness. Their very presence there would have comforted Our Lord, And I report to you, church, that godly women like that fill the pews here at Grace Baptist Church. And that's what we see here, these women here serving God, looking on from a distance. They can't bear to stay close and and watch the suffering, but at the same time, they're not leaving. They're not going anywhere. They have their eyes fixed on Christ. And they conclude the crucifixion scene here, again, not coincidentally, they are featured again. In the very next scene, the scene of the resurrection. And obviously the point to be made here is that everyone can be a part of that community. There is no restriction. Now, if, so, if anyone repents and turns to Christ, forsake their sin and repents and turns to faith in Jesus Christ, he will receive them. He will receive and they will forgive them. And that will belong to this community of redeemed women, these Roman soldiers, the thief on the cross. In other words, the door is wide open. Now the door is wide open. The veil no longer restricts God's presence to you. In fact, if there's anyone here this morning who's not yet made that decision, postpone your new and living way no more.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth with Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.